Section 1 of Epics and Romances of the Middle Ages. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mickey Lee Rich. Epics and Romances of the Middle Ages by Wilhelm Wagner. Section 1. From Part 1. The Amalong and Kindred Legends. Section 1. Langobardian Legends. Chapter 1. Alboin and Rosamund. Untroubled by the conscientious scruples of the historian, the poet throws the glamour of his genius over the events he relates. When taking for his theme the great deeds of the past, he strives to make them live in the hearts of his hearers. The story of Alboin and Rosamund has a strictly historical foundation, although many poetic liberties have been taken with it. For instance, it is contrary to fact that the heroes of this and the following tale were predecessors of Theodoric, for Alboin did not march into Italy at the head of the Langobards until the year 568 AD, whereas Theodoric died in 526, and his Gothic empire was destroyed in year 553. Nevertheless, we give the stories in their poetical order as the natural connection between them is thus kept up. The Germanic Gepid and Langobards and the Asiatic Avars were inhabitants of Pannonia, i.e. Hungary and the neighboring provinces at the time this story begins. War and hunting were the occupations of the freemen, while the serfs tended the flocks and herds and cultivated the land. Now it happened that Alboin, son of Lincobardian ruler Adwan, conquered and slew a son of Thurisand, king of the Gepid, in fair fight. He then took possession of the armor of his vanquished foe, and bore it in his arms to his father's hall, just as the warriors of his race were assembling there to hold a high festival. He would have joined them, but his father forbade him, saying that it had always been held by the sages of the olden time that no prince was worthy to sit at the table of heroes until he had been given a suit of mail by some foreign king. The young man snatched up his battle-axe, but remembering in time that it was his father who stood before him, turned and left the hall. He mounted his charger and set out with his train for the land of Gepid. He arrived at the royal stronghold when King Thurisand was feasting with the princes of his people. Alboin approached the king and, placing himself under protection of the laws of hospitality, begged that he might be furnished with a suit of armor forthwith. The Gepid were displeased with the boldness of his manner, but Thurisand received him kindly and gave him a seat at his side. Many beakers were drunk, and the conversation at table grew more and more unfriendly, for Kunamend, the king's eldest son, was angry and jealous at a stranger being given his place beside the king. To prevent further disagreement, Thurisan sent for the minstrels to come and enliven the company. They came. They sang the glorious deeds of their forefathers, and especially those done by Alderic, who destroyed the power of the Huns. Lastly, they called upon the young men before them to follow in the footsteps of their ancestors, careless whether fortune rewarded their efforts or not. Yes, said Kunamund when the song was ended, fortune is blind and throws her favors at the feet of the mean-spirited creatures with white bands round their knees. That makes them look for all the world like white-legged hacks, and everyone knows it takes a deal of beating to make them go. 
The Langobards always wore the white bands alluded to, so they knew that the scornful words were directed against them. Alboin's blood was up in a moment. He started to his feet, and he told Gunaman to go to the place where he had fought his brother, and there he would see how shrewdly the white-legged hacks could kick. A tumult immediately arose, which was with difficulty calmed by the old king, who then gave Alboin the armor he had craved, and sent him away with his followers without loss of time, lest worse should come of it and the rights of hospitality be broken. As Alboin rode away, he passed Rosamund, Kunamun's fair little daughter, who was playing at shuttlecock with her maidens, and as he passed, he looked at her long and earnestly. Rosamund Peace lasted between the Langobards and the Gepid while the old kings Adoin and Thurisand lived, but after their death a bloody feud broke out between the rival tribes. At length, Kunamund and many of the noblest Gepid fell under the axes of Alboin and his people, upon which the Langobardian king had his enemy's skull set as a goblet in a silver rim and used it for drinking solemn toasts at the great feasts. Then he married Rosamund, and she, poor soul, hated him as the murderer of her father. She had to feign love, though she would willingly have strangled her husband with her own hands. She bore her lot as well as might be, all the while nursing the secret hope that she might one day avenge her father's death. Alboin had no idea of the thoughts that filled his wife's heart. Intent on conquest, he crossed the Alps into Italy at the head of his own people, at those Gepid who had followed the fortunes of their princes and of other adventurers who had joined his train. This he did in response to an invitation from the Roman general Narsus, a victor over the Ostrogoths, who, feeling himself slighted by the imperial court, had determined on vengeance. Alboin carried all before him and destroyed every town and fortress that did not at once open its gates to receive him. Pavia alone offered a lone resistance. During his three-year siege of that city, the Langobardian king made raids into the neighboring country and brought it under his rule. One warrior alone was equal to him in prowess, and that was Paradis, a giant who was said to possess the strength of twelve ordinary men. At last the gates of Pavia opened, and Alboin, who had sworn to put the inhabitants to fire and sword, rode in under the archway. Just then his horse stumbled, and a priest exclaimed that this was an omen that he should die a violent death if he kept his word. The king believed the warning, forgave, and spared the city. The Regicide Alboin gave a great feast to his warriors, at which much of the fiery wine of the south was consumed. The talk of the guest was of the great deeds of Wodan, the god of battles, and how he and Frigga had led their fathers to victory. Then they spoke of their own conquest of the Gepid and their victories in Italy. In the midst of this, Alboin, intoxicated with wine and pride, commanded that the goblet made of Kunamun's gold should be brought, and turning to Queen Rosamund, desired her to pledge him it. She hesitated. Why? he cried. Know you not, Rosamond, that I love you more than aught in the world besides? Show me now your love and obedience by doing what I bid you. She looked at him in silent entreaty, but her hesitation aroused his anger. He raised his hand to strike her, and then she lifted her murdered father's skull to her lips. None could tell whether she drank or not, for, flinging the goblet on the table so violently that the wine ran out, she said, 
I have obeyed you, but you have lost your wife. Having uttered these words, she rose and left the room. A hoarse murmur of indignation passed from mouth to mouth, for no one approved of what the king had done, and he, suddenly sobered by his wife's words and actions, got up and left the hall. Alboin did not see Rosamond again until the following day when she went about her usual duties quietly. The insult seemed to be forgiven and forgotten, but Rosamond could neither forgive nor forget. She dreamed of vengeance. At last, she persuaded Helmagus, the king's shield-bearer, to murder his master. But when the moment for action came, he feared to do the deed. So the queen turned to Paradeus for help, and by means of flattery and sweet words brought him over to her side. One evening, he slipped into the king's room and slew him. Before Alboin's death became known, the conspirators, of whom there were many, got possession of the royal treasure and hid it away in a secret place. Soon after this, Rosamond announced her betrothal to Helmagus and named him as Alboin's successor in royal power. The nobles assembled to debate the point, and after much discussion, it was agreed by a large majority that the murderer of the great Alboin was the last man who ought to succeed him, that he should rather be punished for his crime. Hearing how matters were going on in the council, the conspirators fled. The Retribution Guarded by her faithful Gepid, Rosamond and her accomplices reached Ravenna in safety with the treasure they had carried away with them. There they placed themselves under the protection of Longinus, exarch and viceroy of the Eastern Emperor. They had not been there long when Longinus, having fallen desperately in love with the fair widow, or with the wealth of which she was possessed, asked Rosamond to marry him and she at once consented on condition that the viceroy freed her from Helmigus, to whom she was already bound. Longinus gave her a cup of wine mixed with a deadly poison, telling her to give it to Helmigus the next time he complained of thirst. This she did. Her victim drained half the goblet at a drought. The poison was so strong that he immediately felt he was doomed, and drawing his sword, forced her to finish what he had left. Thus the murderers died, and their great treasure fell into the hands of the Roman viceroy. But the story tells us that wealth did not make him happy, and that it was the ultimate cause of his death. We have still to learn what became of Paradeus the giant. He was so used to deeds of violence that he thought the murder of Alboin a mere nothing. Placing himself at the head of the band of the Gepid, he set out for Constantinople and offered his services to the emperor. His great strength gained him a high position at court and raised him in the master's favor. As time went on, he became discontented with the treatment he received, thinking it hardly consistent with the gratitude he deserved for his manifold services. Some of his angry words were repeated to his master who determined to make him powerless to hurt the throne. One night, when Paradeus was snoring off the effects of a drunken orgy, a number of men crept into his room, chained him hand and foot, and put out his eyes. His howls of pain were so terrible that they made all in the palace and the neighborhood tremble. The blind giant showed himself quiet and obedient so that his guards ceased to fear him, but still they never took off his chains until one evening he begged to be allowed to wrestle before the emperor, maintaining that his strength was unabated. He was led into the great hall, and there amid the general applause proved himself as mighty an athlete as he had ever been. 
Suddenly, he heard the emperor's voice, and dashing in that direction, plunged a knife he had concealed about his person into the hearts of two great officials of the court, whom he mistook for the emperor. A few minutes more, and he had fallen under the spears of the bodyguard. So one by one, the murderers of Alboin all came to a violent end, and the Langobards, for want of their leader, failed to gain full possession of their fair southern land they had come to regard as their own. End of section one, recorded by Mickey Lee Rich. Occasionally, their power was revived for a time by some able king, such as Rotharis, 636-52, the subject of the following legend, till it was finally broken by Charlemagne the Frank in 774.